Hello, everyone. Welcome to the TeamCast. I am Dr. Preston Klein, Director of Research and Education at the Mission Critical Team Institute. The TeamCast is a show where my colleagues, Goldman Rees, Claire Murphy, Harry Moffitt, and myself, along with our guests, discuss all things Mission Critical Teams. Mission Critical Teams are teams of four to 12 people who are indigenously trained and educated and who solve rapidly emerging complex adaptive problem sets. MCTs work in immersive environments of 300 seconds or less where the consequence of failure is death or catastrophic loss. Regardless of whether you are on a mission critical team or not, we aim to bring you the broadest range of topics and guests as possible. Thanks for joining us, and I hope you enjoy the TeamCast. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the TeamCast. This is Dr. Preston Klein, and today I have the honor to be joined by author, filmmaker, and journalist, Sebastian Younger. Sebastian, thank you very much for coming to the TeamCast, and, and hope you're doing well. Thank you. I am, yeah. So we're going to just jump into this. And the reason for the background on this particular team cast is in your book, specifically Freedom and Tribe, there's a lot of overlap with the research we're doing at the Mission Critical Team Institute, specifically around the concept of communitas or people that have shared experiences in very critical and immersive events like the people that we're listening to. And it also so happens that some of our background, yours and mine, overlaps in certain ways. And those ways are really illustrative to, or could be really illustrative to sort of describe <laughs> some of the phenomenon that these operators experience. So to get us started in your book, Tribe, which I read first, the book starts off with a decision to hitchhike across the northwestern part of the U.S. in the fall of 1986. It so happens that I became a wilderness guide right in the fall of, of 1989. And why that that matters, right, is I want to sort to talk about why there are those of us who choose not to go get the nine to five job, who choose to be more comfortable around people that are doing what everyone else thinks is a little odd, that want to step into uncertainty, step into combat, step into emergency medicine, step into the wilderness. What is it about sort of from your experiences, those people who choose what we call the extraordinary life, or the extraordinary world or the critical world, and those who, for whatever reason, choose to remain in the routine world? I think, it, at least for me, it reflects the great security and comfort and privilege that I grew up in. You know, I grew up in a mostly white, upper-middle-class suburb of Boston. There were no random threats. There was certainly no hardship that wasn't voluntary. There they were none of the ordinary human challenges that have, have beset humans for the last 200,000 years until very, very recently. And as a young man, you know, as a teenage boy, I, I, I think I sort of understood that and, and I didn't like it. I mean, I, I, I had this sense of like, how do I become an adult? How do I prove that I'm a man? What do I have to do? What circumstance can I find where I have to prove that I'm daring and brave and steadfast and can endure cold and hunger and all these other things that humans have endured for thousands and thousands of years and that young men particularly have endured for the sake of their tribe, for the protection of their tribe, exactly parallel to the danger and hardship and pain that young women face when they give birth. And giving birth is an extraordinarily dangerous, painful thing to do. Before Western medicine, the mortality rate for mothers is 1% per birth. So you have five or six kids, that's five, 
you know, you know, five or six percent of mothers die. That's something around what the mortality rate on the battlefield probably is. Right. So for, you know, men don't give birth Their Their risks are in some ways are chosen. And, and I felt as an upper middle class kid, like, what do I got to do to prove myself? And it was the 80s. You know, there was whatever. There was no wars to fight. There was no the good fight was not out there for me. I was like, I'm going to you know, I'm going to travel across this great land and I'm going to meet all kinds of people. I I sort of pictured, you know, you know, the American West and the West Coast and the desert and all these environments that are kind of mythic in my mind that I had no experience with. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to take care of myself and I'm going to become a person of the world. And it kind of worked and it kind of didn't, you know, that, I mean, I was, but it embarked me on a process, a lifelong process of making myself of testing myself and making myself part of the common human experience, which includes hardship and fear. And you know, I remember being curled up in a, in a blizzard in the Badlands, of the, in the Dakota Badlands, all by myself. And I, I'm like, damn, this is scary. Like, I, I mean, it was a real, it was a real blizzard. And I was really curled up in a gully, like hoping I was going to be okay in the morning. And uh, I remember I had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. That was it for dinner, right? So those are good experiences for a young person. And But because I'm a privileged person, they were voluntarily chosen. Right. And so there's a couple of things that I want to just react to or just reflect back is the sort of this self-imposed rite of passage, right? This recognition, like, I'm a kid, I want to become an adult. And I want to do something that as you framed it, it's a common human experience. And to your point, most of the world, it is a common human experience, but probably in upper-class Boston, it isn't. And so you probably had friends in high school that chose to not choose that path, right? And probably when you returned from this journey, there was probably a distinct separation, even greater separation from your conversation you were able to have with them because of these vastly different experiences. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, most of human society is taking place in small groups where every individual is needed for their particular skills and assets. And men and young women had distinct roles, but but equally important roles. And young men were initiated into into adulthood. And that included, you know, that included being willing to defend the tribe. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, we're a violent species and and a, a community that cannot defend itself against the enemy will not remain free for very long. And so that was one of the primary jobs of young men is to be willing to die to to defend everybody else. And if you're not willing to do that, you know what? You're not a man, right? And you're we are we will not allow you to get married. Like go off, go somewhere else because we don't need you. And so in this society, I mean, look, let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. The fact that we're not enduring mortal threat every day, the fact that we know where our food's going to come from tonight, the fact that we're not huddled in a gully during a blizzard in the Badlands, right? All good things. And they're be- it's because we have a modern, highly technological society with a legal system and a government that takes care of the most vulnerable and blah, blah, blah. Like, we're, you know, it's, it's an enormous blessing for humanity that that we live for us, that we live this way. But that just because it's a blessing doesn't mean that there aren't costs, doesn't mean that there are not downsides. And the downside for me when I was a young man is like, I need to know that I'm a, that, that, you know, how do I transition? How do I become an adult? What do I got to do? What do I got to prove? And I didn't want to live in a society where you didn't have to prove it. I did not want to be part of a society where, you know what, you just pretty soon you're 24, you're 25, and, you know, you're an adult, it's fine. You know, maybe you're in law school, maybe you're, 
living in your parents' basement, whatever. It doesn't really matter. Like, I knew I could get away with that, but I didn't want to get away with it. I made things hard for myself because I wanted to feel good about myself as a human being, as a man, as an adult. And so I did any number of things. I was a climber for tree companies. I worked 80 feet in the air, hanging off a, you know, hanging off a, a climbing line with a chainsaw, taking trees down in pieces. Dangerous work. I got hurt doing it, right? I became a war reporter. I feel like we we should accept the blessings of this society with the knowledge that we may have to voluntarily challenge ourselves in ways that seem unnecessary, but psychologically are very necessary. You know, I've read my Joseph Campbell, my Mircea Eliade, my Carl Jung. You know, I mean, I, you know, I've read these. You know, the, the, I, I'm an anthropologist. I was an anthropologist in college. It's very, very clear that young people need to do something that makes them feel worthy of the honor of being a citizen of the community, of being an adult, of having the the great privilege to marry and to have children. Those are all great honors. And they're not just handed to you, right? They shouldn't just be handed to you. You need to earn them. And if you have to figure out the test that proves, at least to yourself, that you're ready, no problem, but do it. Like, that is an entirely healthy impulse. So there's interesting things. There's two things you brought up, and and it's really interesting when you read both Freedom and Tribe, these not juxtaposed, but these, these two sort of concepts, which is the need to have experiences that represent my ability to look after myself, be proud of myself, feel capable, and the need to be needed the need to be part of something, and they're inextricably tied together. You can't really do one without the other. You can't be a tribe without being capable. But if you're capable without a tribe, as as you so eloquently put in your your book, Freedom, that comes with its own set of really disastrous consequences. Yeah, well, what I found was that I partially successfully sort of initiated myself in my teens and 20s. And, you know, I wanted to be hard, right? I mean, I wanted to be a tough guy. I wanted to be you know, brave and capable of enduring hardship and all that, blah, blah, blah. And I, and, I, and, and I did it. You know, I sort of partially did it, right? But then, exactly, who's my tribe? I looked around. Like, am I just doing this for myself? And one of the things that I think happens to people is they, they look for a community. And so my whole life, I was just sort of looking for where's the group of people where the person that I turned myself into will be welcome, will be needed, will be recognized as an asset, right? And again, because we live in a modern industrial society, we don't actually have, we don't live in survival groups, right? We don't live in groups of 30, 40 people, 100 people that are our survival community where we depend on everyone and they depend on us. I mean, that's the human norm. And we've liberated ourselves from that because we are so mechanized. We are so incredibly affluent. We are so well defended by our military. And we have a fire department and a police force and et cetera. And we got farmers and people who drill for oil. So we have gas to put in our cars so we don't have to walk. We can drive around, you know, on and on and on. Enormous privilege. And and God bless it, right? Like, I'm not, I'm not complaining. God forbid that we complain about our good luck, right? But... What it means is that we, you know, none of us have a sort of survival group around us until there's a catastrophe. So at the Blitz, in the during the Blitz of London, during World War II, the German Air Force bombed England every practically every night for six months. Right, thirty thousand civilians were killed. We lost three thousand people on 9/11. We're still getting over the psychic wounds of that. Thirty thousand 
civilians were killed. And what did the Londoners do? What did the people of England do? They rallied together. All of a sudden, class differences didn't matter so much. Rich and poor didn't matter so much. Everyone sleeping in the shelter of the tube stations from the you know air raids. As one British official said, we have the chronic neurotics of peacetime. And you know, we all know those people, right? Like, and we love them, but we know what they are. We have the chronic neurotics of peacetime driving ambulances through air raids to help other people. So as soon as there's an emergency, a hurricane at 9-11, right? As soon as there's an emergency, people forget they're sort of like some way selfish self-absorption and think about what the group needs. And, and it feels good, you know, in terms of evolution and anthropology, things that feel good are almost certainly adaptive and have survival value for our species. So how do you get people to reproduce? Parenthood's hard. How do you get people to like sign up for parenthood by making sex feel good? And then boom, you're a parent, right? And then how do you get parenting to feel good? Well, it feels so good to hold a child, right? Like you make things, the things that we need to do as a species, evolution makes them feel good. So we'll keep doing them, right? Does it feel good to to join a group that you're like, I'm prepared to sacrifice my life for these people, even though I barely know them? It does feel good, right? Joining the military, joining the fire department, volunteering after a hurricane to help get, you know, water to people that are trapped and, you know, whatever, all that stuff feels good. It's a sign that we are wired, we are evolved as a species to do those things because they're adaptive. So after the Blitz in London, Londoners, many Londoners said that they missed the war, right? I was in Sarajevo during the siege of Sarajevo in the 1990s when the Bosnian Serb forces had surrounded Sarajevo and were shelling it and shooting at people. You know, one fifth of the city, one out of five people, men, women, and children were killed or wounded by the Serb forces surrounding Sarajevo. And I was in that city. It was much like the war in Ukraine right now. I was in that city, right? It was a horror show. People starved, you could, I mean, it was just nightmare after nightmare. The tragedy of it was relentless. And what happened after it was all over? People missed it. And they missed it because, as one woman said to me, because we were all closer then. Mm-hmm. Like we were a people. And that feels so good that people are willing to risk sniper fire in order to have it. So the, the problem with a safe society is that we don't need to do that. And then we lose the, the communitas, as you said, we, we lose that community connection and there's a real loss there. So for me, the ultimate, I'll finish with this, the ultimate question for modern society is how do we have the safety and the blessing of this society while also figuring out how to reincorporate community obligation, community connection, human connection into our relatively affluent, safe lives. Like, how do we do that? You have to do it deliberately, consciously, explicitly, but I think we can do that. I think you can, maybe if we're really conscious about it, we may be able to sort of have it both ways. Yeah, it's interesting, right? We've written about this idea that not that long ago, you live in New York City, not that long ago in New York City, the police, the fire, people who carried stretchers were all members of the community. It wasn't a, a separate other group right. that was professionalized and sort of antiseptic. They were people that you had beers with, people you live next to. And yeah. if needed, they would say, hey, we can you help us fight this fire? And you'd be like, yeah. 
Yeah. Now it's because it's become professionalized, it's become distant, it's become separate or the other, and people aren't connected to it. And that causes all sorts of problems going both ways, as you were describing. Yeah, and it feels good. You know, like, I mean, we live in, I live in the Lower East Side, Manhattan, and, you know, it's a mixed, mixed income neighborhood, mixed race, mixed everything, very a wonderful environment for me and my wife and my little girls. And, you know, we live right next to the firehouse and I know a couple of the firemen there. And a couple of times we've gone over and had dinner with the guys. Right. And and it is all guys in the firehouse. And, you know, it's a rare experience where you're like, as a citizen, you're sort of part of the group that's helping take care of everybody. Right. And it's a very, very healthy thing. I mean, I wish they had a program where local families had dinner with the, at the police precinct and at the fire station. Like it would be a one, an enormously healthy thing. Yeah. I was walking down the street a few years ago with my wife. And I mean, there's a lot of emotional content here that we don't even understand. So I was walking down the street with my wife. You know, we have this society. It's way more efficient. There's insurance benefits to all this, blah, blah, blah. We have outsourced the dangerous jobs that are needed to that we need done. Right. We have outsourced the police, fire department. We don't there isn't a bucket brigade of citizens when a fire breaks out in the building. And in some ways, thank God. And thank God the professionals are doing this. Right. But there is a loss to the sense of community. But it's under the surface. So I was walking down the street with my wife on 23rd Street, and we saw smoke in the, you know, a, a block away. And we walked up, and there was a big fire in an apartment building, right? People in the building, you know, God knows, like, what? Well, oh, my God, this orange flame coming out of the, you know, yep. you just feel your heart sort of tighten, like, oh, my God, I hope everyone's okay. And the fire department gets there. They shoot a ladder up to the roof, and one guy with an axe climbs up the ladder onto the roof of the building, right? To do whatever they do. And my wife just burst into tears and started sobbing. Yeah. At the, what what for her was the bravery. And I'm sure this guy was like, I'm a fireman. This is what we do. You climb up onto the roof, you stick the hose in the hole, yeah. put out the fire, you know, it's like all the days work. But to witness someone doing this for us, all of us, is has enormous emotional content. You know, I think dads who watch their wife their wife give birth, you know, it's the same thing. Well, you're doing this for us. Like, you know, I think crying is probably a very common response in fathers in the delivery room. Like, oh, my God, look what you're doing. And it's for us. You're being selfless. Right. And that act of selflessness is a very, very profound one. It's a very human one. And the downside of our affluent society is that selflessness is not often at the common person is not often asked to be selfless because we have these dedicated professionals who do who are selfless as a profession right and they're super good at it but there's a real loss there because i think most people want to be of service they 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 want to be noble they want to be generous they want to be selfless and there just aren't that many opportunities until someone starts shooting in a freaking movie theater there aren't that many opportunities to act with nobility and courage so one of the things I want to swing back to is this idea of living a life of significance and connection and belonging where you're needed and what you're doing is important, but also this, this idea of connection. And so, you know, one of the things that you and I have a similar parallel situation is that I will often go into very tight-knit communities of which I am an outsider, but I spend enough time with them in training and development and helping them that I'm I'm still an outsider, but I'm also now something else. And I know in your work in Restrepo and other places, <clears throat> you've been in that situation where you're clearly not in the military, but you're also not totally an outsider. And yeah. so how do you sort of think about navigating those spaces? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I hung around, you know, with Redrepo, I just hung around long enough that the guys eventually, they had to either kick me out or accept me, right? Which, right. So, you know, I think what's very important is to never try to pretend that you are one of them, right? Because I'm not, you know, out of Restrepo, I'm not carrying a gun, right? I'm sorry. But, you know, I'm carrying a, a video camera and my self-assigned job is to document what they are doing on behalf, you know, what they were told to do by our nation, like go over and fight this war. Well, all right, I'm going to document what that feels like, what that looks like, right? But just because you're not one of them in your in your obligations doesn't mean that you're not one of them in your loyalty, right? So I would never, ever have put that, those guys at risk through my own shortcomings, right? I made absolutely sure that physically I was strong enough to keep up with them no matter how far they were walking, no, how, no matter how steep the mountain was, right? I made sure that I was accustomed enough to combat that I wasn't going to freak out during a firefight and have to be babysat by somebody. Like, I, I mean, I took care of my business, right? And I also, as I got to know those guys, it's just a natural human feeling. Being accepted by a group feels so good. And one of the things that you give in return is you understand that if someone in the group needed you, you wouldn't hesitate, right? And I thank God this never happened, but I'm absolutely convinced that I would have subjected myself to gunfire to danger to help one of them had I been in a position to do that and they needed me I don't think I don't think I would have hesitated for a second likewise with my own children of course I wouldn't hesitate right I mean mean, one of the pleasures of being part of a group this mutual agreement like I would do I know the group would do anything to save my life and I would do anything to save their lives and that's what feels good as one of the guys in the platoon said to me he said you know, it's funny. Those guys in the platoon who straight up hate each other, but we would all die for each other. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an extraordinary and profoundly good feeling circumstance to find yourself in. And then you come back to society, which, you know, just doesn't need that kind of loyalty because you're not often in a situation that's dangerous. So and I think there's a real letdown there. There's a real disappointment. You know, the Lewis and Clark expedition, when they came back from their you know, incredible trek across the the continent and back. I'm sure they 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 experienced a huge letdown. And 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 Lewis apparently, there's some question he might have killed himself afterwards. Like uh, there's some question whether it was a murder or a suicide. At any rate, he had a very very troubled life after they all came back, and it reminded me of the struggle that a lot of vets go through. So recently, I had the honor to interview Luke Crawford, who is the cultural advisor for the New Zealand All Blacks as a Maori. So he's a Maori elder in that tribe. And what's interesting about the New Zealand All Blacks is they are both a sports team, but also representative of a particular tribe, the Maori tribe. And they share and overlap certain traditions like the haka that everyone knows about. But one of the really interesting things that I was interviewing Luke about, he says, you know, Preston, there's parts of you guys, I, and he's speaking about Western civilization. He's like, I just don't get. And one of the things I don't get is we would never send one of our warriors somewhere and not be there when they return. Yeah. We always receive them like they're always going and coming from us. We always go. And so I often think about this exact point, which is as you and this is particular to you as well. There is both the folks that you're talking about, the military folks that come back in that set of letdowns, but they're still within a very particular tribe. You as an outsider individual, you're coming back and not necessarily into that same community and just... Yeah. Well, we're a a de-ritualized, detribalized society. 
Some people are religious. I'm not religious. I'm an atheist, but, you know, a lot of Americans are. But, that you know, the, the, even that religious process t- takes place outside of society. It's not taking place in the town hall, in the town square, right, at the market, at the whatever. Like, it's separate. And so tribal societies understand that a returning warrior is two things. They're very, very vulnerable because they've been traumatized and they're very, very dangerous because they've been traumatized and you have to decommission them. I mean, they're, they're meant to be a killing machine, right? That's how they survive. You don't want a killing machine coming back into your community with women and children and vulnerable people. I mean, you know, like that's, that's not a winning scenario, right? So it falls on society to train warriors to fight but also to train that to decommission them and train them not to fight and to get their sense of self-esteem, their sense of potency, their sense of manhood, competency, and honor and being valued from something other than being a warrior. Mm-hmm. If you're if you come back and you need to be still be a warrior while you're walking around a shopping mall outside of Houston, Texas, you're a danger to yourself and others, right? You know, you like, you know, do not keep that warrior identity back home. Yeah. Right. But I understand why they do it. And I, I think we all know vets who do that. Right. I understand why they do it, because society is not offering a recognized process for decommissioning that part of their psyche and offering something else of value. And so the gentleman you you interviewed who was Maori, like the Maori is still a vibrant enough tribal society that he is connected to that process. The Native Americans that I know more about had ceremonies. There was the Kiowa Gourd Dance that was an opportunity for warriors in the Kiowa Nation and other of the other tribes of the Great Southern Great Plains. They would come back and they would sing and dance and retell their exploits on the battlefield to the whole community. There was a catharsis for them. It it required, it allowed or required the community to sort of participate morally in the violence that was committed on their behalf, right? It was all very organic and healthy. The Papago were a very, a very peaceful tribe, but they would fight when they had to. And they had they had another ceremony, sort of an equivalent ceremony. And war, war was understood to be both poisonous and a way of achieving an understanding that you could not get in any other way. So when warriors came back, they were both thought of as dangerous until they were properly processed. But the, also they had special knowledge. And that everyone in the Papago community had to participate in these rituals because war was thought to affect the entire community, not just the warriors who fought it, right? And again, this segmented society, yeah, there's a military-civilian divide. There's a everything-civilian divide. Do you know anyone who drilled oil to produce gasoline that you put in your car so you can drive around? Maybe, but probably not, Right. Do you know the men and women who grew the food you ate this morning? Probably not. You know, there's a, there, there is a disconnect from everything that keeps us alive, not just warriors. And so one of the one of the solutions that I thought of, I mean, we're not a tribal society, 330 million Americas, Americans. What are you going to do? You're not going to have 100 million sweat lodges to, you know, like across the nation to reunite. Give me a break. Right. So but here. But what's doable? What's achievable? First of all. You can take the gourd dance and do a sort of modern version of it. The center of every community is the town hall. So what about if every Veterans Day, veterans from any war who served in any capacity, I don't care if you were a supply clerk or a Navy SEAL, 
right? It was all necessary. Served in any capacity, they have the right, they would have the right to stand up and speak for 10 minutes to the community about what it felt like to go to war. You know, some vets are going to be very proud. We all know those guys and women, right? Some vets are going to be very, very angry that you made me fight in freaking Vietnam for a war that we lost. We didn't need to fight, blah, blah, blah. We all have heard those people too. God bless them, right? And and there are people that will be crying too hard to even talk very much. So I started something called Vets Town Hall, vetstownhall.org, that basically... We're trying to do this and are doing it across the country at every Veterans Day at town halls across the country. You can organize. You don't have to be a vet. You can be a civilian. You can organize. You go onto our website. It's very clear how to do it. It does not cost a dime. These are public buildings, right? And you just open it up for veterans to speak every every Veterans Day to their community. It's an incredibly powerful thing. So that's one thing that we can do that replicates some of this ritual process when warriors come home. And the other, just more broadly, and I'll just I'll just say it quickly, but I think it has some value. It's an honest question. Like, how do you feel like you're participating in a nation that's 300 plus million people that's this affluent, this safe, this industrialized, this technological? You don't need me. I'm just one person. Like, you can, you know, I disappear. Y'all are fine. Like, it's, that's a bad feeling for people to have that they're not needed, right? So, but you are needed, right? We need you to vote. The nation needs you to vote. Everybody can vote. Everybody must vote. We need you to do it or this country will fall apart if people do not vote. We need you to serve on jury duty. Jury duty is what keeps, one of the things that keeps us from being subject to tyranny It means that no one person can decide the fate of another person. No king, no president, no sheriff, no general, no mob boss, no corporate leader, no whatever. Like it takes a jury. And if you don't serve on jury duty, frankly, you shouldn't expect a jury to show up to judge you for something maybe you were wrongfully accused of. You must serve on jury duty and finally donate blood. We cannot make blood. We can only get it from from human beings. And you know what? When you donate a pint of blood within a week, you're good again. It's the ultimate free lunch. My life was saved two years ago. I had an abdominal aneurysm that ruptured out of the blue. I had no idea it was there. I bled out into my own abdomen. I lost half of my blood into my abdomen. I got to the ER. My blood pressure was 60 over 40. Right. Anyone who's been in the military knows that that's, that's death's door, right? I mean, I I was minutes from dying and they put 10 units of blood in me. 10 people saved my life. And now I donate blood every two months. If you do those three things, if that's all you do, you will feel like you were part of a a greater thing, that you were part of this nation. It's an extraordinary feeling, even at that sort of small symbolic level. Yeah. And I think a couple of things that just to amplify what you're saying is when people are transitioning and I get many calls from folks that are transitioning from the teams, you know, one of the things I say to them is, you're not going to miss what you think you're going to miss. What you're going to miss is a sense of being needed, of connection, belonging, of purpose to something bigger than yourself. Just going to get a job won't accomplish those things. You have to seek out people that have similar life experiences about you, but that you don't sit around and just talk about the good old days. You're working on something new and you're part of something bigger. And so I appreciate what you're saying as these small things that we need to remind are actually really important. Yeah. And and I think it's very important to talk honestly about the emotional consequences of war, 
without, but be mindful that you don't want that convers that important conversation to slip into a kind of victim mythology. That's right. Right. And, and, and it's, it, you know, it happens before you know it. It doesn't just happen to veterans. It happens to all kinds of people. Right. right. I mean, once you yourself identify as a victim, you're kind of screwed. Yeah. Because being a victim is a disempowered thing. And there is a power in victimhood. There's a moral power. And you can be self-righteous in ways that will get you some things that you want. But ultimately, it just, it's a disempowered way to live and sort of never turns out well. Yeah. And so what, you know, what, what I would say is that, you, you know, have those conversations. But when you start talking about what they are doing to you, you're heading down a dangerous path, dangerous for the nation mm-hmm. and dangerous for yourself personally. And I say, I think that's true about woke culture. Mm-hmm. I think that's true about MAGA. I think it's true about vets. I think it's true about all kinds of people. Like you, you, as soon as you start talking about yourself as a victim of something, you're on the losing team, frankly. You know, in our paper residue, we spent a lot of time sort of talking about the fact that any experience that you have, any experience, there is a moment where you can choose to turn that into teachable wisdom or turn that into trauma that will haunt you for the rest of your life. And at some level, that is a choice. And people like Viktor Frankl and Mansur Tremining sort of emphasize this idea that regardless of what's happening to you, there is a moment of free will still involved in that. Absolutely. And, and it, it, you know, it's a tough way to live. At the end of the day, you're sparing yourself a lot of misery by, by refusing the sort of victim narrative. I mean, some now probably 20 years ago now, they've made an um, amazing movie about this. There was a young man who was like running out in the canyon lands of Utah and he fell and something happened in a boulder land. I, I'm sure you remember the story. A boulder yeah. landed on, pinned him, you know, way, way, way out back, right? Like yeah. pinned him to the canyon wall. And he couldn't get his arm out and no one knew he was there and he was going to starve to death. I mean, he was going to die of exposure and thirst in the desert, in this sort of crack in the desert. No one was going to find him. All right. So right there, are you a victim of the universe? No, I mean, you can see yourself that way and you can complain how, you know, how could anyone do this to me? But at the end of the day, the the reason he's still alive is that he cut his own arm off with a leather band tool, right? Now, that's a badass thing to do, among other things that required him to stop thinking himself of himself as a victim and to give himself agency and embrace something that was going to be incredibly painful and traumatizing, but would lead to his survival. Yeah. So, you know, like what just to take that as a metaphor, when you say that you're a victim, it's a childlike attitude that somehow the world is. Your parents are around you to take care of you. And if they fail to, it's on them, you know, until you get your arm pinned to the side of a canyon by a boulder. And then you're just in a, you're inhabiting a universe that doesn't care what happens to you. So you better start caring what happens to you. Yeah. One of the things I want to just pivot to is, is as we mentioned earlier in your book, Tribe, that story starts off with you taking a solo journal, but your book, Freedom, starts off with you taking a journey with a group of people, Right. And so to think about as you've grown up, this idea of going out into the world independently as a as that Western sort of ideology of the of the rugged individual vice being part of something that is collaborative and just where that happens in your own sense of yourself. Yeah. Let me just say that the experience of being on your own, either on your own in a crowd or on your own in the wilderness, 
is a profound experience. And it, you know, it's part of the, the sort of like psychic diet that we all need. You know, I was a long distance runner and I would take these long 20 mile runs in the woods, in the wilderness, in nature, amazing experiences, right? And had I broken my leg, I would have been at some duress to crawl myself out of there to safety. And, you know, so there was something about being in that situation that was really, you know, sort of life or not life and death, but whatever. It was on me. What happened to me was on me, right? Like with tree work, like I realized tree work when I was up there in the 80 feet in the air with a chainsaw hanging on a rope, if I got killed up there, you know, you're just dealing with the laws of physics. There's nothing random up there, right? If I got killed is because I screwed up. There's no victim here, right? If I got myself killed up there is because I did something stupid with the saw. I didn't tie a knot right. I didn't calculate the top of the tree coming. In. It's on me. So there's situations where you buy yourself that are, they're almost intoxicating because your level of responsibility is astronomical. But what you also need is group experiences. And so what you're referring to is a trip that I took about 10 years ago, long before I thought I would write a book called Freedom. It was just something I did and that I wanted to do, right? And I took a Spanish photojournalist named Guillermo Cervera, who was with my buddy Tim when Tim died in, in, in Libya. Uh, I made, Tim was my colleague that I made Restrepo with, colleague and brother and friend. And he, he got killed in Libya. He got hit by shrapnel and he bled out. The last thing he saw was Guillermo's face. Guillermo was holding his hand in the back of a pickup truck. Guillermo's now my brother. I mean, it just transferred. My brotherhood with Tim is transferred to Guillermo, right? We're, deep, we're good, 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 dear friends. So I took Guillermo and I took a couple of combat vets that I'd known out at Restrepo. And we walked along the railroad lines, which are these swaths of no man's land, right? This isn't the Appalachian Trail. This isn't a bike path along the Potomac, right? These are swaths of no man's land. It's totally illegal to walk on them. There's a lot of marginal people out there. We walked along the railroad lines from D.C. to Philadelphia to Pittsburgh, through the ghettos, through the factories, through the wilderness, through the farms, through the suburbs. The suburbs were the worst because people are paranoid and they kept calling the cops on us. So, you know, basically, we, you know, we're sleeping under bridges, cooking over fires, getting our water out of creeks. It wasn't wilderness. But, it, you know, it wasn't, I don't know what it was. It was just, we called it high-speed vagrancy. That was our sort of word for it. And one, one of the things that was intoxicating about it, that trip would have been terrifying if I'd done, done it by myself. But in a group, the, the feeling of security that came from knowing that you're with three guys, the four of you together are going to handle anything. Like, I know whatever happens, we are going to freaking handle it. And there's something about that that was incredibly gratifying. Mostly what we had to handle every night was where are we going to get water? Where are we going to make a fire where no one will see the smoke? Where are we going to sleep so that we're not in danger while we're asleep or not going to get discovered and messed? You know, like that's usually what we were dealing with. But even those small tasks created a kind of unity, a kind of selflessness in all of us that was totally addictive. Yeah. So just going back to something you said, one of the things that's really interesting, you know, I've 
people know me know that I've led expeditions and or been part of expeditions in all seven continents, right? And so, like you, I've had some a variety of experiences where I've made some poor choices and interesting things happened. But one time up in the Everest region, I had high altitude pulmonary edema, lung infection, and I had to hike out 30 miles. It was the worst I've ever felt. And I was in the process of dying. But every time I sat down, I literally sat down and said, if I don't get back up, I die. Like this is entirely in my choice. And when I look back on that now, I actually look back on it and smile with a certain amount of pride. And while that's sort of insane, because it was so miserable, it sort of speaks to what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, look, humans from most of our evolution, most of our history, our survival dependent on us and the people closest to us. And no fire department was going to swoop in and save us. And, you know, we had to defend ourselves, right? I mean, we had to take care of ourselves and that, you know, you're a big guy. No one's going to those, you know, you know, no one's going to carry you down the mountain, right? It's on, it's on you. And, and those situations are, are terrifying, but they're also, you learn a lot and you, you know, you learn about, you learn about the, the, the value of life and you learn about personal responsibility and you learn among other things, you learn that we're animals. Yeah. We are animals. We're mammals. And we live and die, you know, with the blood in our veins and the in the air that we breathe. And no one's going to come swooping in and save us from the big bad universe. So what's really interesting, and this shifts us now a little bit to uh, your book, Freedom. And what I find, and I'm about to offend a whole bunch of people, so you can push back if I offend you, I don't think I will, is uh, I have a number of friends that look on the news and see these guys that are grossly overweight in combat outfits and flak vests or protective vests carrying long rifles, right? And they call them the cheeseburger militia. That's their nickname for these guys. And I think about these guys and when I see them, what I see is people that are terrified. I see people that are that are always afraid of losing something they have. They're constantly talking in a frame of, man, we must protect what we have or we will lose it. And I, I always contrast that against people who kind of cherish their freedoms and contribute to it. And so <clears throat> what I've been noticing a lot of is this dichotomy of people that speak about freedom, either from a framework of terrified of losing it and spend their life, life obsessed about protecting it, and those that cherish it and sort of thrive in it. And I and I don't know if that's a fair sort of comparison, but it's often what I see. Well, okay. So here's the thing. I, I think it's hardwired into us to be invigorated by the idea that you're taking care of your own survival, right? Uh, I think men are particularly prone to the charms of that idea, right? Yeah. The problem, again, the pro- quote, problem with modern society is that our survival is almost never in in question right which leaves particularly the men without much to do without much to do that feels vital and important and honorable and heroic right i'm sorry any way you cut it giving birth is heroic we cannot give birth for better or worse we are not going to have to do that. A, a friend of mine just gave birth. She was in labor for 40 hours. Try doing anything for 40 hours. I challenge you. Try walk out your front door and call me 40 hours later and tell me how far you got. Like, do anything for 40 hours. Not happening. This woman was in agony for 40 hours. That is badass, right? So what do you? What, what do the men do? What do we do, right? There's it, Most of the tasks of survival are, are taken care of for us by other men and women 
who are professionals who are paid to do it. So I think I understand on human ter- terms, the allure of wanting to step into that heroic w- role where you're defending your family, you're defending your society, your community. You're the hero that you always wanted to be. It's just, just like when I was a teenager, it's just this society has gotten that stuff all down so perfectly that you're actually not freaking needed. So what do you do? You play soldier. Like you dress up and you get the gun and it's a real gun. It can really kill people at all. It all feels very consequential and serious. But essentially, you're pantomiming a protective role against the enemy that really isn't there, right? There was a wonderful thing on Facebook or something. It was a sort of, it was a little meme, like whatever it was. Anyway, it was it was called the home invasion you've always dreamed of, <laughs> right? You know, it was, it was a veterans thing, right? It was yeah. literally, you know, geared towards veterans. You're like, okay, you guys came came home. There's not much to do. You got, you got, you know, 20 guns in your house and no one's invading, you know, like no one's doing their part. Like when's someone going to break in at 3 a.m. so I can do my thing, right? Like, right. so it called attention to that. So, so that's what those guys are doing. And on the one hand, I think they're, you know, in some ways they're idiots. Like, come on, just count your blessings that you don't need to do this. You're destabilizing the democracy. You're freaking everybody out. You're a danger to yourself and others. Like, come on, grow up. But on the other hand, it's a symptom of the success of our society in taking care of those basic, those basic survival needs. That 5,000 years ago, a very warlike people called the Yamnaya that came from the Russian steppe, they were some of the first people to use horse-drawn chariots in combat. Imagine, imagine what that was like before the horses were widely used you had guys on horse-drawn chariots cutting a swath through their enemy with broadswords and battle axes like how terrifying right and they were the some of the first to use horse-drawn chariots they cut it you could think of them as they, they traveled without women they were just these marauding hordes right and that you could think of them as like the first motorcycle gang right they cut right through europe they went straight to the iberian peninsula spain and portugal and over the course of 100 years they killed, they eliminated all of the men in Iberia. There are no, there's no male DNA from Neolithic Iberia. It's all Yamnaya and then other peoples that came after that. They killed all the men and clearly mated with the women, right? The Iberian men could not defend themselves. They could not do what those guys you're talking about are pretending to do. The, the need to be able to defend yourself is a core one in the human experience. If you can't do it, you are screwed, right? And so what these guys are doing is acting out a role that's actually not required of them anymore. And frankly, it's kind of tragic. Like, I, I hope they get help. I hope they get the help they need. So as we close out this, this amazing conversation, the, the sort of last thing I want you to sort of comment on, I'm going to give you a kind of a scenario. Imagine that I come to you and I say, hey, Sebastian, I've got uh, three or four young journalists that are about to head over or in a few months heading over to a conflict zone. It's going to be bad. Like they're going to be embedded. It's going to be rough. They come from sort of upper class environment and I have a week to train them, right? So thematically, if you think about this process of all of the things that you've experienced, what are the elements that you might include in such a training? Oh, God. Well, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I mean, the combat environment is such a complex one. It's very hard to recreate it at a shooting range or whatever. I mean, boot camp kind of does it. And, all uh, you know, the 
all the different military schools kind of do it. It's not like marriage. You kind of have to learn on the job, right? And But you have to be willing to learn, ready to learn. So what I, I think what I would say to them is you, you have to learn to be completely imitative. Whatever people are around you are doing, you do it. If everyone's taking a knee, you take a knee. If no one's talking, do not talk. Be very clear in your mind what risks are worth it. Human life is always worth the risk, right? If someone's in danger and needs your help, it's almost always worth the risk to help them. If you have children, you shouldn't be over there in the first place. You should stay home because it's you know it's not your life to give. Your life belongs to your children. And just don't don't do it. And if you're over there chasing a big story, you really have to decide: is this about me getting a scoop, or is this a story that the world really needs? And if I get killed doing it, at least they can say, "All right, he was uncovering a story of enormous consequence." And he made the right choice. It just turned out badly. And you really, mostly you have to think about your life as not your own. Because once you get killed, it's all the people who love you who have to carry on. It's those people who suffer the grief, the loss, the the broken heart. It's your mom, your dad, your friends, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, or whatever. Your, Your life is not, it does not belong to you. It belongs to everyone who loves you. And you really have to get that fixed firmly in your mind. And, you know, foreign reporting, and I say this as a former foreign, you know, war reporter, can be, a you know, as, you know, it seems sort of like noble and selfless, but it also can be a kind of ego-driven thing, right? You're a certified badass, you're dodging bullets, you're the star of every cocktail party when you come home because no one else is doing what you're doing. You've got stories that eclipse everyone else's stories, you're a somewhat heroic figure, at least in your own mind, right? So what you have to do, I mean, that's fine. You know, ego is a healthy thing and it gets people to do things that are otherwise intimidating and scary. But what you have to do is make sure that that ego does not eclipse your better judgment, that that it doesn't make you an unbearable person to be with. Ego is one thing, but you have to balance it with a sense of obligation to others and a sense of nobility and a sense of humility. And until you get that combination right, and you know, that's true if you're special forces, if you're a Navy SEAL, if you're a fireman, and we all know those incredible professionals whose egos sort of take over their identity, and they're just unbearable, right? You know, it's like, don't be that guy. So there's a certain amount of psychological. And then the final thing I would say is, why are you going? Are you going to prove something about yourself? I mean, that's why I went to Sarajevo. I was trying to prove something, like that I was a man, and no problem. But at least be clear about what you're doing. And when if you just say, well, I, someone needs to bear witness to the tragedy, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, that's bullshit. Like, it, that's kind of true. But someone else is going to bear witness if you don't. Why are you doing this? I don't even care what the answer is, as long as you're giving me an honest answer. And what I would have said, I would, you know, if someone had asked me that, I would say, look, I grew up, I grew up in an upper middle class neighborhood. I've never been in danger. I've never been in a situation that I did, couldn't control the outcome of. You know, it's time to, for me to grow up. You know, it's time for me to subject myself to something that's terrifying and overwhelming. And I think that will help me mature as a person. You could argue whether that's right or wrong, but at least I'm being, at least I'm being honest about it. And I, you know, I remember telling myself in the, telling myself in those terms, like, that's why I'm going to Sarajevo. I was very, very clear about it. And and that's a very, very important component of going overseas is like, why are you, you yourself, you personally, why are you doing this? And please don't give me bullshit. Please give me an honest answer. Don't make yourself sound like a saint. Give me an honest answer about what this is doing for you, because that's a 
very important part of this. Yeah. And I think being really honest about your motivations, doing anything is really critical in these critical environments. There's a little known story that has been just recently come out, which is Demi Moore, who I've never met, when she was making the movie G.I. Jane about the SEALs, was really not liked by the SEAL community. And that's to be expected. But years later, the person who trained her, who was an operator, was actually killed overseas. But because she was separate from the community, she didn't have anyone in her world to sort of go and talk to about the fact that this person who spent a lot of time training her, she was very close to, died in its tragic way. And it wasn't until recently that she reconnected with some SEALs they could finally have that conversation. Yeah. And so I say all of that just to say that if you're if you're putting yourself in this situation, whether with a group or separately like yourself, it's really key, as we said before, that you've you've identified a group of people that you can occasionally go and help make meaning of it with because yeah. it's not going to make sense to your mom and your sister and your cousin, and your neighbor. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the extraordinary things about 9-11 many extraordinary things about 9-11. One was that the suicide rate went down in New York City after 9-11, not, not around the country, but in New York. After 9-11, the suicide rate went down. Vietnam vets said that they experienced a reduction, a diminishment in their PTSD after 9-11. Like all of a sudden people felt like, oh, I'm needed. Yeah. And it allowed them to leave, the, sort of like put aside their psychological burdens, right? And so basically, it turned New York into one huge community, which is, of course, is how humans have always lived, right? The, the idea that there's like Navy SEALs and then there's firemen and then there's like crossing guards and then there's this and there's that. And none of no one knows each other in human terms is sort of insane. I mean, it's required by the complexity of the society, but it's it's not human. And so what 9-11 did is return us briefly to one big tribe, particularly in New York. And I remember walking around. I was overseas on assignment when 9-11 happened. And I, you know, came back as soon as I could. And, you know, a week later or so, the air still smelled like smoke. And, you know, it was all people walking wounded. I mean, totally traumatized people. And sometimes I remember there was a guy standing frozen on the street corner. And clearly his thoughts had sort of caught up with him. And he was literally just frozen thinking on the street corner. And I watched someone else go up, a stranger, go up and to put a hand on his shoulder and say, hey, man, are you all right? And, you know, he, he was a guy, he was fine, but he just getting caught, you know, clearly yeah. thinking about the horror. And a bystander, you know, someone passing by just like checked in on, right? It's amazing. Amazing, right? It, it's not realistic to expect that for everyday life in New York or anywhere else. It's a modern city, you know, whatever. But just to remind us that trauma will return everyone to a kind of community and that's what Demi Moore was, you know, was missing because there, there hadn't been a community-wide trauma that put her in the same boat as the Navy SEALs. That's right. Right? Had they all been in a, in a, on a New York City ferry that sank in the harbor and they all barely survived, Demi Moore would be the same as those Navy SEALs for a little while. They'd yeah. all be survivors of the ferry incident. Right. Yep. That's how it works. That's how humans work. Yeah. So I, I really appreciate your time. We're, we're coming to the end and I will just, uh, I'll, I'll give you a chance to say any closing thoughts to any of the communities that are listening. But just as a reminder to the people listening, it's not just that you need to find a place where you are needed, where you are significant, but also that you're providing significance and the sense of being needed to others, right? You also should be authorized to do that for others and not just wait for it to be done to you. That's that's sort of what we're getting at here. It's, it's a collaborative community process 
narcissism, which you are both a recipient of, but also a provider of. And so, Sebastian, I'm so grateful that you came and talked to us today. And I just want to give you any last closing thoughts that you might have. Yeah. So, I, you know, I think it's very easy for us in our society to just slip into our sort of siloed experiences and not think about or sometimes sort of openly disrespect other people's experiences, other people. There's a pretty brutal class system in America. There's a lot of racial problems. There's a military-civilian divide, et cetera, et cetera. Certainly a Democratic-Republican divide, right? I think it's crucial for our nation, for all of us, to start to think more broadly, right? And, uh, you know, the idea of saying thank you for your service, if you want to say that, but thank you for to the crossing guard in front of the school. Like, thanks for taking care of our children. I mean, you say that once in a while. And say, you know, whatever. Like, the society is filled with people we need. And the more we can communicate our awareness of that, the better off we're all going to be. And one of the things that I like about Vets Town Hall, and I hope people do check it out, is that it makes it clear that we are all, you know, in every community, here we are all together. And I know this... You know, you go to it and you're like, there's people in this room that are a, a different political party or a different this or that, whatever. But it's clear that here we are in this sort of sacred space, acknowledging the sacrifice, the efforts of these, these select few. But you know what? We're all making sacrifices. We're all ma- we're, it's not just veterans. It's all of us. Give me a break. We all deserve some thanks, some congratulations, some appreciation, you know, and you and, and that's quite clear in those rooms. So I hope. America can do this. We're the most fantastic nation in the world in many, many ways. We're a little bit of a threat to ourselves right now, but I think I think we can do it. Yeah. I love the fact that we're ending this on gratitude. So I just want to thank you again so much for being here and thanks everybody for listening. And this has been the MCTI Teamcast. Thank you again for listening to our Teamcast. For more information about the Mission Critical Team Institute, please go to www.missioncti.com or follow us on LinkedIn or Instagram. If you are a Mission Critical Team that wants more information on our courses, please reach out to our Director of Operations, Janice Jackson, at janice at missioncti.com. That's J-A-N-E-S-E at missioncti.com. And once again, thank you, Janice, and thank you to Shelby Row Productions for helping us produce the Teamcast. Have a great day.